thank you. It's good to know that God indeed will see us through. He is our shelter in the storm. I want to ask you if you have your copy of God's Word to please open it to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation 15. The focus of our time this morning will be on verses 1 through 4. So Revelation 15 verses 1 through 4. If you don't have a Bible with you or on your phone or anything, there are some hardback Bibles located in the back of the seats near where you are seated. So please feel free to make use of one of those. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. And if you will, please follow with me as I read these verses. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Would you please bow with me in prayer? Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to work within us that we might understand your word and by your power apply it to our lives. Father, we ask you not to let us be the same when we leave here today. Transform us. We ask you, Lord, to take what we know in our minds and apply it to our hearts and grant us an experience of being in your presence this morning. Father, give us a hunger for you that exceeds all other desires. We ask you, Lord, to do this so that our joy would be, would be increased and your glory made known. Thank you, Father, for hearing our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, at the very beginning of this message, I want you to realize that I know, I know that I'm taking a very big risk in using a picture like that while I'm preaching. Because when we look at that, it's easy for our minds to become distracted and start thinking, boy, wouldn't it be nice to be there? Wouldn't it be nice to be kicked back in a chair? with a big old glass of sweet tea and your feet in the water, can I get a witness? Now, I want to let you know something. It's, it's okay. It's okay. I want to give you permission to let your mind wander to that scene, but with one caveat. As long as you're imagining heaven. Because believe it or not, that is a scene that is described in heaven of saints being by the sea. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I like being at the ocean. I guess of all the trips our family has taken, those are my favorite. 
Because I do, I love being there, not just because you're away from the, the humdrum of life, but to me to stand in front of the ocean and to look at it and to realize how big it is. To me, there's a sense of awe. I begin to think of the transcendence nature of God. Of how big God is. Do you know how big God is? God is so large, so immense, that if you were to take all the waters of all the oceans, all the rivers, all the lakes of this world, they would be but a drop in the hand of our God. And that God knows me. When I'm standing at the edge of the ocean and I look at it and I think, God, how big you must be and how insignificant I am. And you know me. You know, you and I need that sense of awe. If there is one word that I really believe is overused today, it is the word awesome. I mean, think about that. We use the word awesome to describe everything from a hot fudge Sunday to a football game. Now, believe me, if a hot fudge Sunday can cause you to be awestruck, your threshold for being in awe is way too low. Quite frankly, I believe the word awe needs to be reserved for God. Because He's the only being in the universe that can truly give us a sense of awe that we need. And you and I need that. We are born with a need for the transcendence. We are born with the need to be in amazement at something. Our souls hunger for that and they begin to dry up when we lose that. Ravi Zacharias makes a great illustration of our need for the sense of awe and what happens to us. He says, imagine that he's telling a story to his three children. He starts with the first one, Sarah, who is eight years old. And he begins telling the story, one night, Sarah, Tommy got up out of the bed. And Tommy made his way. To the door and when he put his hand on the doorknob and turned it and he opened it there was a dragon and at that point Sarah's eight-year-old eyes would be as wide as saucers and amazed that there was a dragon behind the door now let's shift gears and go to his next child Naomi Naomi is four years old and he tells the same story Tommy got up out of bed and Tommy walked across the room and made his way to the door and at that point, Naomi's eyes are wide because for her, just to be at the door and getting ready to open it is amazing enough. Now, let's go to the next child, Nathan. Nathan, who is two years old. And Nathan's worldview can be summarized in one word. Cookie. And he starts to tell the story to little Nathan. Nathan, Tommy got up and Tommy walked to the door. Now at that point, Nathan's eyes, two-year-old eyes, are wide because it's just amazing enough that Tommy got up and walked across the room to the door. Now understand what's happening. When you're younger, it takes less to create a sense of awe in who you are. But what happens to us as we get older? It takes more and more and more for us to be amazed and in awe of something else. Else. And I would submit to you, the only being in the universe that can meet our need for awe and transcendence is God and God Himself. That's why we need to have a big view of God. That's why we need to have a scriptural view of who God is. Because what we see in Revelation 15, we see saints 
standing by the sea, and they are in awe of who God is. Now this section of Revelation, verse 1 in chapter 15, begins a new section. A little bit of a corner is turned. In chapters 12 through 14, we got a glimpse of the conflict taking place behind the scenes. We saw the conflict taking place between Satan and the saints. Between the evil one and the saved ones, we saw how the serpent dragon will work through the beast, which is the worldly system that seeks to corrupt people by materialism, greed, by lust, to pull them away from God, and how the beast has a prophet, a propaganda machine, and it's a warning to the Christians. Don't get caught up in that. Be aware of what's going on. And now in chapter 15, we come back to this final section in verses 1 of chapter 15 through 1621, dealing with the final outpouring of God's judgment. Look in verse 1. John sees another sign. Now remember, a sign points to a reality. What is this sign? Seven angels with seven plagues. That's the sign. What's the reality? The reality is described at the very end of verse 1, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. The reality is the finality of God's wrath being poured out upon the earth. This is the culmination of God's judgments coming out because with this, the wrath of God is finished. Now, I understand in talking about the wrath of God, there's a level of discomfort that accompanies that. Rightly so. The wrath of God is a scary thing. It's not to be watered down. It's certainly not to be trivialized. But I'm afraid that the wrath of God makes us uncomfortable for a completely different reason. We're uncomfortable with it not because of the fearful nature of it, but because we don't know how to reconcile the wrath of God with the love of God. We view those two things as being opposite of one another. But if we really think about it, we would understand that God would not be God if He were not just. And He would not be just if he did not express his wrath toward wickedness. Fleming Rutledge is a theologian. She's written a book entitled The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ. She talks about this discomfort with the wrath of God. And, but she points out, and rightly so, you can't ignore that thing. If you simply read the Bible, you will encounter the description of God's wrath. But Fleming Rutledge points out for a moment asking us to look at our own lives. Don't you and I have wrath also? Aren't there things that we look at and we think that needs to be changed? She points out that one of the slogans of our world today is this, where's the outrage? When we read of, uh, of EpiPens being marked up to $600, there's a sense of outrage. That's not right. When we read of government waste, when we feel like our government is indifferent, we say, where's the outrage? When we begin to ask the questions, why are so many mentally ill people slipping through the cracks? Where's the outrage? 
Why does gun violence continue to be a hallmark of American culture? Where's the outrage? And we feel a sense of indignation that those wrongs need to be set right. If we feel outrage at those things, is it not reasonable for God to feel outrage also? Would God be worthy of praise if he looked at the wrongs of the world and did not feel a sense of anger at the wrongs that are being done? But understand, where our anger is often selfishly motivated, God's anger is never like that. God's wrath is not an emotional flare-up where he loses it. Our God does not have temper tantrums. God's wrath is His settled, absolute enmity against all wrongs and His commitment to set things right. The wrath of God is not antithetical to His love. It is a part of His love. And it's something that we need to cling to to know that God is just. Now this text doesn't just jump into a description of God's judgment. Verse 2, notice how it begins. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now this follows a pattern that is found all throughout Revelation. That before a scene of judgment is, is described, we are taken to the throne room of God. Chapter 6 contains the opening of the seals that begins this process of judgment. But what precedes chapter 6? Chapters 4 and 5. Right? Guess what's in chapters 4 and 5? A scene of the throne room of God. So that the judgment that unfolds, unfolds from the standpoint of heaven. In chapter 8, we come now to the trumpets being blown in chapters 8 and 9. But what precedes chapter 8? Chapter, guess what's in chapter 7? A scene of the saints gathered before God and praising Him. Before there is an expression of judgment, there is always given a scene of heaven. Same thing happens here. Before in chapter 16, the bowls of God's wrath are, are poured out. We see it from heaven's perspective. Now notice how the perspective of heaven sets the stage for understanding what is about to happen. Notice where the saints are standing by a sea of glass. Now, what's that describing is this sea is perfectly calm. And it's here we run into a question question that some pose as a contradiction in God's word. Alright, we see in the text where they standing a sea of glass. But then we run into this and you'll see it in the verse up on the screen in Revelation 21. John sees a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now look at the next phrase. The sea was no more. So people think, well wait a minute. There's no sea in heaven. There's no sea in the new earth. So how do we reconcile that with what we read here in chapter 15 as well as what we see in Revelation 4-6 in this description before God's throne. You'll see Revelation 4-6 up on the screen. Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, perfectly smooth. This truth is emphasized in the Old Testament. When Moses was instructed to build the tabernacle and later Solomon, David and Solomon to build the temple, they were to build it based upon the design of heaven. 
so that the tabernacle and temple gave people a taste of what heaven was like. And what do you find in the tabernacle and the temple? You find these big lavers of water with gallons upon gallons upon gallons of water to represent this sea. So how do we reconcile Revelation 21? There is no sea in heaven. We have to recognize the language being used. The sea represents chaos. Those things that are uncontrollable. Those things that are a result of our sin. Look back to chapter 13, verse 1 for just a moment. Where does this beast, this beast, this worldly system, where does it come from? It rises up out of the sea. It rises up out of chaos. You know why? Because in the midst of chaos, we as people long for something that will give us hope. We long for something or someone that promises us peace. So out of the chaos, a false god arises. But notice what we see in chapter 15. We see our God not coming up out of the sea, but reigning over the sea, turning calm into chaos, turning the stormy sea into the serene sea, turning the angry ocean into one that is peaceful forevermore. Notice in chapter 12, verse 17, the dragon stands on the the sand of the sea. The saints in chapter 15 stand at the edge of a sea, but it is a sea that is calm, that is controlled by God, and they are praising God for what He has done. So my encouragement to you is this. If you feel like right now your world is in chaos, you're not sure what to do, take comfort in knowing that God is at work to vindicate His name, working in the midst of whatever circumstance it is, so that one day you will know the peace of God. Don't despair. Don't despair. And notice that this, this, this sea of glass, smooth, no chaos, the world that was sin and seemed to be uncontrollable is now under the complete control of God. And what's the result? Praising Him. Notice in the, at the end of verse 2 the description. Standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Now, I think that phrase, harps of God, is best understood as saying harps from God. Harps given to them by God. And the point is this. God has equipped His saints to praise Him for eternity. Now, think about that for just a moment. If I were to ask for a show of hands, how many of us would, would be honest enough to say, You know what? I thought of heaven, and quite frankly, the thoughts occurred to me that it may eventually turn out to be a little bit boring because people think of heaven like that singing praises for all eternity people think of it like church they see heaven's just a big church service and quite frankly many of you may be thinking right now this feels like eternity it's okay I understand If you've ever thought that heaven would be boring, I just want to ask you to consider something. Do you ever get tired of joy here? I mean, seriously, when you've ever experienced a moment of joy, have you ever said to yourself, I am sick and tired of being joyful. I am tired of being happy. And I want you to know, no longer, okay? I've had it up to here with joy. Usually what do we want? We want the joy to continue. That's why we take you know, we use our phones to take pictures and clips of things. I mean, how many times have you videotaped something that was sad 
and gone back to watch it again and again. We don't. But if it's something joyful, a first birthday party where we watch the child demolish the cake, oh, we'll watch that over and over. Watch this. He's going to throw cake on his grandma, and it's great. Watch this. And we laugh. We share joy. We want it to continue. God is the source of joy. God is the fullness of joy. And not only is God the fullness of joy, He is infinite. Which means this, you will never exhaust the glory and the joy of God. His joy will continue to grow in infinity forever and we get to experience that. We will grow from joy to joy to joy exponentially and that's what makes heaven satisfying. Heaven will be boring only if God is boring. And I can assure you, our God, the creator of the heaven and the earth, the God of infinite joy, the God of infinite satisfaction is not boring. He's not. And they can enjoy Him eternally. And so the point is this. Because of the joy that awakes. Because God will equip you to worship Him. Persevere in serving Him. Live faithfully. Pray continually. Don't stop fighting the good fight. Don't stop running the race. Because God is at work. You see, we don't experience heights of joy all the time here, do we? We're not home yet. There will be times where we're physically tired. Times where we want joy, but it's not there. We're not home yet. But that doesn't mean God has stopped hearing your prayers. I believe that chapter 15 shows that God is faithful and true to the prayers of His people. To keep this in mind, I want you to to keep two things kind of in, 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 in both lobes of your brain. Earlier in the book of Revelation, in chapter 6, we were introduced to saints underneath the throne. Now draw your attention to verse 10. These saints say this, How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long, God? We died for you, Lord. How long before you vindicate your name? Now it's hard for us to understand that prayer. Because quite frankly, the reality is you and I have not staked everything on the truth of the gospel. We've not staked our lives on it. There are certain books that I will reread. Because they're they're meaningful to me. And one of those books that I reread every other year, and I'm, I'm doing it this year, is a novel by a Japanese Christian by the name of Shusaki Endo. The title is Silence. And it's the story of Christianity in Japan. It's historical fiction, but it's rooted in what the church in Japan went through. You may not be aware of this, but in the 1500s, Christianity in Japan was growing by leaps and bounds. Over 300,000 believers. But it changed with one arrogant statement by one arrogant Spaniard captain. His ship landed, and when he was standing in front of one of the shoguns, he bragged about the greatness of the Spanish Empire and Armada. And he said that the secret to their greatness is that the missionaries would land prior to the Armada's arrival and prepare the way by lulling the people into a sense of ease. You can imagine what happened after that. 
persecution began to spread out of fear that this Christianity may bring about the defeat of Japan. It got very, very difficult. In February of 1597, 26 Christians were crucified outside of what is modern-day Nagasaki. There's a memorial that stands there today in their honor. In October of 1619, 55 persons, men, women, and children, were led to a dry riverbed and set on fire. By those who were recording it, they said you could hear the screams and the prayers of mothers praying for their children, saying, God, have mercy on us and receive our souls. I can't imagine. But I could imagine that when you endure things like that, that prayer in verse 10 becomes very real. Lord, how long before you show we're not foolish? How long, O oh Lord, before you show, Father, that you are real, that the gospel is truthful? You see, this is showing us in chapter 15 that God is true to His Word. He will vindicate His name. Therefore, trust Him. Look to Him. Keep persevering and be willing to lay all on the altar. I want you to look at the key of this. Now notice in the praise, and time is failing me, so tonight we'll dive more into verses 3 and 4 and 5, 6, 7, and 8. But notice what they're singing in praise. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Their song is one of deliverance. Now throughout this section, there's a connection, a connection with Moses. Verse 1, plagues. That goes back to Exodus. Look in verse 2, the sea of glass. You hear echoes of the Red Sea. The song of Moses from Exodus 15, a song that Moses led the people in, celebrating their deliverance through the Red Sea. Look down to verse 5. I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. There's a connection between the Exodus and what happens here. But the focus is this. Moses was simply a shadow, a, a, a preview of the greater Moses that was to come. That our deliverance is secured through Jesus Christ. Because notice in verse 3, it is not just a song of Moses, it is a song of the Lamb. How are you brought through this time of difficulty, this time of tribulation? By the Lamb of God. And here is the key. Look to verse 2. Those who had conquered the beast and its image. You know how they conquered the beast? By being willing to die. Hear my Lord. See, that's the great reversal. The world thought it had defeated the Christians by killing them. But the Christians won by giving up their life for Christ. So the question comes, if we want to be a part of this group, if we want to be a part of the saints standing by the sea, the question comes, are we hearing the call of Jesus that says, take up your cross and follow me? Are we willing to conquer by carrying a cross? One of my theological heroes is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In the early 1930s, he was to give a speech, a sermon, 
on radio controlled by the Nazis. When he stood in front of the microphone, he began, he read the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. If any man would follow me, he must take up his cross and die daily. And Bonhoeffer said these words, When Christ bids a man to come, he bids him to come and die. He never finished the message because the Nazis turned off the broadcast because such talk's dangerous. Are we willing to bear our cross? And bearing that cross means living faithfully. Yeah, it, it may result like those martyrs in Japan almost 400 years ago. It may be like martyrs today in North Korea, in China. But here the question for us is, are we willing to live totally for Him? In the year 2012, John R.W. Stott died. Now, you may not know that name, but in the 20th century, he had a huge impact for world evangelism. Working alongside Billy Graham, he helped to find or to found the 1974 Louis Zane Conference for World Evangelism. Great writer and preacher. Passed away in 2012. Oz Guinness visited John Stott when John Stott was on his deathbed. Guinness knelt beside him and said, John, how can I pray for you? John Stott said this, Oz, pray that I will live faithfully till I die. Pray that I will live faithfully till I die. That's conquering the beast. That's the promise of standing with the saints by the sea. My brothers and sisters, will you bow your head with me right now?